It was the year 1977. I was a lad. A wee little lad was I. And my dad brought us to see Star Wars. And my life was changed. <laughs> I loved it. Luke Skywalker was awesome. I loved his hair. <laughs> but way back in 1977, I had no idea that this would be one of seven films. No idea. None. And so 38 years later, 2015, I brought my family to see the la latest kind of installment in the Star Wars series last Monday. And looking back through, what's the, what's the What's the movie called? What's the latest one? The Force Awakens? So looking back through The Force Awakens, all the way back to 1977 to that first Star Wars, I realized I had no idea. I had no idea that Luke Skywalker was going to point to Rey. I didn't know that. Spoiler alert. Sorry. <laughs> no! No idea. 1977, there was, there was a foreshadowing. I don't even know if George Lucas knew this. There was, there was a foreshadowing going on of someone who would come and fulfill it later in this episode 7 in 2015. It really only makes sense when you look back through it. And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 in which we're going to look back, Matthew's going to help us look back at some Old Testament passages, and we're going to see how they point to Jesus. They're going to show us how they foreshadowed this Jesus the Christ, our King. And what you're going to see is Jesus is the great fulfiller. He's the great fulfiller of so many Old Testament passages. And where we're going to land this plane is, not only is Jesus the great fulfiller of the Old Testament, but He's the great fulfiller of your deepest longing. He came for you. If you look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13, what I want to point you to right out of the gate is the word fulfill. It's used three times in this passage. If you notice in verse 15, uh, and they remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So note that, the word fulfill there. And then in verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then if you look at verse 23, and then and, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so in this passage, we have three fulfillments pointing to Jesus. I want to show you how. Now, this isn't the first time the word fulfilled was used in Matthew. Matthew's already used it a couple times. If you look back in Matthew chapter 1, we see it in verse 22, where Matthew is talking about the, the miraculous conception in, in Mary and the birth of this son whose name is Emmanuel. And he's saying that fulfilled Isaiah 7.14. And then we look down at chapter 2, verse 6, verse 5, actually. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written, fulfilled by the prophet, and he points to Micah 5, 2. 
the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. Fulfillment. In these two fulfillments, it's very clear that they're talking about the Messiah. And so what we see early on in Matthew is this kind of God spoke a prophecy about the Messiah and it very specifically came true in Isaiah 7.14 and Micah 5.2. When we turn to chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, it's not that clear of a fulfillment. It's a different kind of fulfillment that's happening of the Old Testament. Instead of saying God saying something specific and specifically pointing to the Messiah, in these three little fulfillments, Matthew is saying that Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled Old Testament Scripture in a different kind of way. A more general way. It's like the Old Testament sets kind of a trajectory. It's a foreshadowing that only looking back through Christ do we see the fulfillment of it. This is classically known as typology. We're not going to quiz you on that. Don't worry about it. But typology is a, a legitimate way of understanding fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so just a little bit more on that. When we see New Testament writers using Scripture this way, what they do is they're showing how Jesus fulfills kind of general themes, general ideas in the Old Testament. A classic example would be this. Do you remember the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? The ongoing killing of animals in order to cover over sin? Well, that is a type of sacrifice. And it's a foreshadowing of something that will be fulfilled in Christ's one-time sacrifice for all. That's the point of Hebrews 10. And so we see this kind of fulfillment being used by New Testament writers, and it's fulfillment of particular people, institutions, themes. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 2, I want to help you to understand there's a different kind of fulfillment of Old Testament going on here. Typically, not what we usually think of fulfillment of prophecy. It's a little broader than that. And so I just thought we could just jump right in this morning and we'll look at these three fulfills. You ready? Let's go. Fulfill number one. We see this in verse 13 through 15. Now when they... Uh, the Magi had departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child Jesus and his mother Mary and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod, remember he is a Simonizing, politically savvy killer. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose. It was immediate. He is quite the man. He arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now what's being quoted there is Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And what the, Hosea is talking about out of Egypt, he's referencing the Exodus. Remember? Pharaoh? Let my people go, Moses. Exodus. And so what it is, is a deliverance from the captivity in Egypt. 
That's what's the backdrop there. That's what's being talked about. What I want you to dial in on is those words, my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And there's two points I want to make here. First one is this. This is the first time in Matthew that this phrase, my son, is being used by God to speak about Jesus. And so this is the first time we, Matthew uses a prophet to communicate that, that God is saying, this is my boy, this is my son, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, this boy, fully God, fully man in one person. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It's a reference to the people of God. My son, the Israelites. It's a reference to a body of people. And so my son is being used in Hosea 11.1 1 as a reference to God's people that he's delivering out of captivity from Egypt. And the question becomes, well, how does Jesus fulfill that? Well, he is the new my son. He is the embodiment of God's new people. God's new people, the church, all who bow the knee to Jesus, become Christians. They are located in the Son, my Son. He's the embodiment of a people delivered not from the captivity of Egypt, but from the captivity of sin. You remember Matthew 1.21? It's in the name Jesus. She, shall, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was sent to Egypt not only to get away from the slaughter of Herod, the evil king, but to come out of Egypt as the my son, the embodiment of a new people. And that's how he fulfills Hosea 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. It's, it's this foreshadowing fulfilled in Jesus. The second fulfillment I want you to see is chapter, or chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. This is a really interesting passage. And I, I, I'm telling you, I had to lean hard this past week on people far wiser than me in helping understand this. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, the Magi, became furious. Remember, he was paranoid. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from all the wise men. And that was based upon when the star raised. From, we talked about that last week. And then verse 17, he says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 18, what's being quoted from Jeremiah is Jeremiah chapter 31. That may ring a bell. We'll come back to it. Chapter Mar Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Now, could you imagine being a mother in Bethlehem, of one of these babies that was slaughtered by Herod. Could you imagine the pain? 
Could you imagine that? It would have been horrendous. It would have been horrific. Deep sorrow. It was a horrible wrong. What I want you to see here is Matthew is very careful to make a distinction for us. And so what's going on here is fulfillment of God's plan, right? But look who he blames. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he, Herod, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. Matthew is very clear to be putting the blame on Herod, not God, for the slaughter of these baby boys. So I just want to make sure you see that distinction. But what Matthew is saying is that this, this weeping, this deep sorrow going on, this is fulfillment of something. This is, God, God brought this in a way, in his sovereignty and human responsibility that we don't get. But God is sovereign over this. Their weeping points to something. Jeremiah 31.15 pictures Rachel, sister of Leah, who apparently, some believe, died in Ramah. They, Jeremiah 31 pictures her as kind of the matriarch of the children of Israel. And she's weeping for them. Why is she weeping for them? She's weeping for them because God's people are being exiled. Jeremiah 31 is speaking of the exile of God's people from the land. Jerusalem's been sacked, and God's people are now being deported. And Ramah was a staging point for the deportation of God's people to the nations, to Babylon. And so what we see going on here in Jeremiah in this section, is not the exodus being called out of Egypt. It's the exile. And so why Rachel, as a representative, is weeping so much is because it looks like her people are seemingly no more. And more significantly, perhaps, is that it looks like the kingly line of David has now come to an end has ceased. And so if you flip over to Matthew, back to the genealogy, Matthew's already hinted at this. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, that's what we're talking about right here. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And the, the point that we're seeing here is that there is great weeping going on in Ramah because God's people are being sent out, and there's no more good King David on the throne. In fact, there's an evil king on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar, back in Jeremiah. And here, the evil king, of course, is Herod. So the parallels between what's going on in Jeremiah and what's going on in Matthew 2 are We've got moms weeping for the children, suffering under the reign of a foreign king. Because a good King David is no longer on the throne. It's a fulfillment of pain and longing. 
It's pointing to something deep. It's not avoiding pain. It's addressing pain. And pointing to hope. D.A. Carson helped me out. He's prof down at Trinity. And to summarize what he said is, the weeping that started with Rachel in this exile climaxed in the weeping of these Bethlehemite mothers. It was the fulfillment of hardship of life under a foreign king. It anticipates Messiah's reign coming to an end of life under exile. The coming of a Davidic king out of Egypt. So what I want you to be thinking about here is there is real pain here. And pain is part of God's plan, but pain is not the final word. Jesus is the final word on pain. Stepping back from Jeremiah 31.15, I, I want to remind you of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of hope. Again and again, God is saying to his people going into exile, you're my, you're my kids, you're my family, you're my peeps. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to regather you someday. There's a future hope for you. It's all around it. Verse 9, 17, 20. There's a future hope for God's people, even with them going into exile. And do you know where he ends up pointing to? And this is where Jeremiah 31 might have rung a bell in your head. Jeremiah 31 is home of the new covenant promise. And so Jeremiah 31 talks about, 33 talks about God establishing a new covenant one day with his people in which he will write the, his law on their hearts. It's a new way of God relating to his people. He's going to bring them back and he's going to relate with them in a new way. Now this is where I want to aim you at Jesus. The night before Jesus was crucified, he was in an upper room having a meal with his disciples. Do you remember what he did? He broke bread. He poured out wine. He said of the bread, this is my body given for you, take and eat. Do you remember that? And then he said of the wine, this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for, the, for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. He's the hope. Even in the face of great pain, He's the hope. New way in which God relates with a new people. Matthew is saying that the weeping of these mothers in Bethlehem is the fulfillment of the misery of God's people living in exile under the reign of a non-David king. And ultimately, the longing we see in these moms, the longing we see in Rachel, is our longing. Longing to come under the life-giving reign of Jesus. To know Him and trust Him and experience the goodness of His ways. And so what we see happening in this little section, it's like this dark backdrop on a stage. It's very dark. But... In comes the spotlight on Jesus. The fulfillment of this experience anticipates King Jesus. 
one last fulfilled, the return to Nazareth. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the children and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. No, so the Holy Family is in Egypt now. An angel of the Lord appears to them in a dream, says, Okay, it's time to go back, go back to Israel. Uh, Herod's dead now. And so Joseph, again, immediately obeys. He rose, took the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, and they went back to the land of Israel, presumably seeking to get back to Bethlehem. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, Archelaus was one of Herod the Great's jerky sons. He was awful, terrible, and he was in this position of authority for like two years, and then he got canned. He was so bad. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, God intervenes, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So they're going to go back to Bethlehem in southern Israel, but God intervenes, and they go up to Galilee, which is in northern Israel. And in the district of Galilee is this little town called Nazareth. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, more like a town, that what what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So I want you to see that it's prophets, plural, so there's more than one prophet that has apparently spoken of Jesus being from Nazareth. And whatever the fulfillment is, it's got something to do with Nazareth. The challenge is that if you search through your Old Testament, there is no specific quote, he shall be called a Nazarene, stated like that in your Old Testament. It poses quite a challenge. And so we got to ask the question, well, what's being said here? And what I want to help you to see is that there is a trajectory, a foreshadowing in the Old Testament that points to Nazareth and Jesus being a Nazarene, fulfillment of it. There are two really good explanations for this, and they don't have to be one or the other. So let me give you the explanation for this, he shall be called a Nazarene if it's not explicitly stated in the Old Testament. That word Nazareth sounds like a Hebrew word, Nazar, which means branch. And if you flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Isaiah uses this unique word, Nazar, to describe the Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, talking about the David, David's line, and a branch, a nezer from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he and his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. I just love that. Speaking of the Messiah. And so what Matthew appears to be doing, and he can because he's an inspired writer of Scripture, he's saying that there's a word play going on here. And Nazareth should make you think branch, 
which makes you think Messiah, which helps you to see that Jesus, he's the Messiah. And his ending up in Nazareth was part of God's plan. There's another passage, another passage in Jeremiah, another prophet that speaks of, doesn't use Nazar language, but uses the word branch to speak of the Messiah. It's Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Samir pointed this out to me this past week. I'm so, so grateful for him. But what it points to is the Davidic Messiah will come back and he will set up shop. Let me just read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He's going to deliver God's people out of captivity to sin. And so, one way of understanding this Nazareth quote is that it's actually pointing to branch language. The other way to explain it is by understanding what Nazareth represents. Nazareth was a despised place. And despised places produce despised people, generally speaking. And so what... Matthew, according to this understanding, this explanation is, what Matthew is doing is talking about the reputation of the Messiah, that he would be despised. Do you remember back in John 1, Philip, he runs to his brother Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, uh, we, we found the one that the law of Moses was speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. And then in 146, do you remember what Nathaniel said? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> it was a backwater town. Didn't have a good reputation at all. And so the idea here is that Matthew, by saying that Jesus is a Nazarene, actually is a fulfillment of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah as being despised. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, and of course the great one, Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I love this explanation. I like the Nazareth explanation too. They both are very helpful. But the fulfillment would be this. Nazareth represents the reputation of Jesus. He's a Nazarene. And I just want to remind you, this Isaiah 53, it's, it's messianic. It's, it's a prophecy of the coming suffering servant. He would be despised. He would suffer. He would be shamed by people. But in verse 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him, this despised one, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This despised one is our Savior substitute who died in our place. These are two options of explaining this he will be called a Nazarene. What happens, what happens if Matthew had both in mind? I think he very well, may, very well may have. And if that's the case, Jesus, the Nazar, the righteous branch, will be despised and rejected by men in order to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the embodiment of a new people, of a new exodus that he brought about by the shedding of his blood. And so the point of all this, and I thank you so much for hanging in there. I know this was kind of heavy lifting mentally. (laughs) The point of it all is that what was written long ago in a country far, far away, What Matthew is saying about Jesus is that he fulfilled God's eternal plan for the salvation of sinners like you and me. Jesus is the great fulfiller. He is the focal point of God's plan of salvation. He's the great king from David's line whose kingship brings eternal life and joy to those who know pain and suffering and heartache and the consequences of sins. He fulfills our greatest longing. And so, this morning I want to walk away with three things on your mind. In light of Matthew 2, 13 through 23, we can walk out of here knowing that God is sovereign. Sovereign over it all. Fulfill, fulfill, fulfill. He reigns over it. It's his plan being carried out. But what I want to just put in your head in there is pain is part of his plan. But it's not the final word. It's not the final word. Jesus is the final word. We sang it already. Revelation 21. When Jesus comes back, he's going to take his finger and wipe away every tear from our face. He's the final word on pain. He knows pain. God is sovereign. God is loving. This plan that we see being fulfilled here in Matthew 2, this plan is a loving plan plan of fulfillment. It's aimed. It's a glorious plan for our greatest good to rescue sinners from their sins. That's what it's all about. And God's doing it out of love for us. So God is sovereign. God is loving. And Jesus is worth it all. He's the fulfillment of God's plan for the ages and the fulfillment of your deepest longing. It's all about Jesus. He's the great fulfiller of Scripture, and He's the great fulfiller of sinners' hearts. Let's turn to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. We feel the limits of our brains when we read passages like this, God. But we're so glad that You're sovereign, that You're loving, and we see that Jesus is worth it all. God, we're so grateful that You sent Jesus for us. We're so grateful that you don't bypass our pain. We know that you can use it for good. 
Lord Jesus, we recognize you as the great fulfiller, and we are looking forward to seeing how you fulfill the law and the prophets that all would be accomplished in Matthew 5. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. Amen.